So we are continuing our walk through the book of Ephesians. This is a book that was written to Ephesus, surely, and more than likely it was circulated in uh, many churches in that region, a place that was associated with paganism, as we had heard in the uh, introductory material when we first started. This is the place that... um, drowned out or attempted to drown out the noise of the truth tellers uh, as Luke records in the book of Acts by saying great is the goddess Diana of the Ephesians in an attempt to exalt the greatness of Diana above the greatness of God. That's the kind of society that Paul is writing these truths to or in, maybe I should say it that way. And we've taken a turn, uh, beginning in chapter 4, that they don't just know these truths, but they walk these truths out, that they they live uh, in, in a way that reflects what Christ has accomplished in them. So we're in verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. And that's... Uh, We're going to go through 32. That's a a fairly lengthy, so I will just read that to us. And then then we will hear the word of the Lord uh, speak to us through uh, the preaching of His word as well. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up the sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires... And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. A short prayer, gracious God, may we see you in all of your glory. We may not attain to your glory through our striving, but by your grace... We are conformed to your image. 
And may that glory have its transforming work, at least in a partial way, in our lives today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I looked for a good uh, illustration up here this morning. I think the, the best illustration would be Darren. Uh, because of the way he was sitting on the stool, he was, uh, had his full weight. Did y'all notice that? Y'all probably didn't because y'all weren't thinking about preaching this sermon. But he had his full weight situated on that stool, that stool that, uh, that Darren more than likely outweighs, right? But he had placed his full weight. Not, didn't even have his, I was thinking of using Megan, but she kept, one, she kept one foot on the ground. But Darren had his feet and everything on that stool. And the reason that Darren had his whole weight on that stool was because he had a sincere held belief that that stool would support him. That that stool would hold his entire weight. He, he was not wishy-washy like Megan was, right? He had placed his full confidence and full weight on that stool. The reason that we know that Darren knew that that stool would hold him up is because he was sitting on it. He had placed his whole weight on that stool. His belief in the support of that stool determined the way he behaved. It determined the way that he acted. Because belief determines behavior. Our behavior is a demonstration of what we believe. Right? And Paul understands this truth. And now that he has established what uh, we were talking about you, but it was it was uh, it was negative. <laughs> but uh, but now that he's established what the Ephesians believe, he reminds them how they should live. I don't think that Paul just understood it to be automatic. There was some some teaching involved. This is what you believe, and now this is the way that you demonstrate what you believe. If you believe that Christ has died for you, then it's going to determine the way that you live or the way that you walk is the, is the way that Paul, or the word that Paul uses. He reminds them how they should live. And in Ephesians chapter 4, in our text, 17 through 32, he uses the old manner of life and the new life or the old self and the new self. They need to put away the old self or the old manner of life. And they need to live out the new life that they had received in Christ Jesus. They needed to behave newly. They were placed in a new society. They were made new. And so they should have a new lifestyle. New life equals new lifestyle. The word Paul leads off with demonstrates the, the urgency of this. He says, now I say and testify in the Lord. That word testify, it doesn't carry the idea of giving witness like we normally use the word testify, unlike the word testify is often used in Scripture. 
It, It doesn't mean giving witness like in court. Rather, it carries the idea of an urgent declaration. The, the New English Bible even translated, the, translates it thus. It says, I urge it upon you that you no longer walk as the Gentiles. The NIV translate it, translates it as, I insist that you no longer walk as the Gentiles. And it's consistent with the way Paul begins chapter 4 by urging the Ephesians, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you in verse 1 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. He's saying something very similar. There is an urgency here. You need to be sure that your new life is lived out in a new lifestyle, that your behavior demonstrates your belief. And Paul tells them, no longer walk as Gentiles. Now this is, this is an interesting phrase to me, and it struck me as I uh, made an attempt to uh, get a, a good grasp on what this text is saying. It seems strange to me because the, the vast majority of the intended audience of this letter were Gentiles. He's writing to Uh, Ephesus, at least, and more than likely, uh, uh, several other churches in Asia Minor. Again, the audience would have been primarily Gentiles. But Paul says, don't walk as, as Gentiles. And it is possible that Paul meant, don't walk like the other Gentiles around you. But there's a, there's another possible meaning of, uh, a commentator in the uh, Tyndale New, New Testament commentary, uh, Fawkes was his name, uh, says that the reading is most consistent uh, with the old manuscripts, or the reading that is most consistent with the old manuscripts, is Paul communicating that they are part of an, a new society. And we've talked about that several times, that, that this is a, a new people, a new society. Uh, they are the Israel of God, even, is how... Paul alludes to them in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16. And that fits in with the theme of Ephesians that the New Testament church is a new creation. They are a new humanity. They're made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And and it's also interesting to me that, uh, that Paul speaks of their old way of living as Gentiles ignorance, hardness of heart, unbelief, similarly similarly to the way Jesus talks about the Pharisees. And so it's almost like Paul is flipping things over, uh, flipping things on their head. The old categories of Jew and Gentile had been broken down, as Paul has already made the case for in Ephesians chapter 2. And those new categories of believer and unbeliever are being established There is a new creation, and Paul is calling the Ephesians to walk in newness of life, in the newness of life that each person who has been made new is given in the new creation or receives in Christ Jesus. Don't walk as the Gentiles do, but rather walk as this new society of of God's people. And regardless of whether whether Paul had the connection of this new Israel of God that he alludes to in Galatians chapter 6 in contrast to the 
old Israel in mind. What is plain is that these members of this new society or new creation should not live like they used to live. They should not live like the pagan society all around them were living. New life, new lifestyle. Paul first does something that I also thought was interesting in this text and I think informs the point of the text. And he pays particular attention to the life of the mind in his description of the way unbelievers were living. He says their futility of mind results in their darkened understanding. Do you hear that? They were alienated from God because of ignorance. And this is not, a, this is not ignorance in the way that we often think of ignorance, like a, a lack of, of knowledge in some particular area, but this is a spiritual ignorance. This is a spiritual darkness because even the most brilliant minds in the world often are completely ignorant to the work of Christ and to the reality of God. They were alienated from God because of their ignorance. And their ignorance was due to their hardness of heart. They didn't believe because they didn't want to believe. They had made a conscious decision. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The, the, fool, the fool cannot look into the starry skies. And the fool cannot consider reasonable arguments and walk away saying that there is no God. He has to say within the hardness of his heart, there is no God. And, and that, is, that, is, uh, that is what's happened in this pagan society. They had hardened their hearts and they were ignorant. And as a result of their hardness of heart, their darkened understanding, they lived sensually. They lived greedy to practice all sorts of impurity. They had hardened their hearts against God and their unbelief resulted in rampant sin and decadence. And you only need to go back and do historical studies in some of these ancient societies to realize how foul and perverse these societies were. And the reason they were so is because their hearts were hardened and they were ignorant to the things of God. What I'm trying to show you is what I think Paul is trying to make the case for is that there is an immediate connection again to what a person believes and how a person lives. Paul is saying they live this way because they don't believe God. The futility of the mind of the pagans in Asia Minor showed up in the futility of their lives. Belief determines behavior. But in contrast to this, Paul declares that is not the way Christians had learned Christ. You have not learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard of him, assuming that you have been taught by him to put off the old self, you have not learned Christ in this way. And, and it is in contrast, I think, to an antinomian idea that we, that we have in our minds today that all that a person needs to do is believe that Christ existed and then they can continue to live a life of sin and decadence. 
That is not the case at all. A life of sin and decadence could very well betray an un, a heart of unbelief. You would not learn Christ in this way. Assuming that you were taught in Jesus, they were taught to put off that old way of living and to put on the new self. There are a couple of things I think that we ought to note here. First, pay attention to, again, to Paul's emphasis on the life of the mind. Look, verses 20 through 23, he contrasts the, the life of the mind of the unbeliever to the life of the mind of the believer. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. He says you have not so learned Christ. Assuming you were heard and taught the truth. They are called to be renewed in the spirit of their minds. Paul again understands that belief begets behavior. The reason the behavior of unbelievers is futile and corrupt is because they are futile and corrupt in their minds. And I don't just mean their brain. I mean their inner being, their self-awareness. When they consider things, they are corrupt and it shows up in a corrupt lifestyle. And the reason the believer's behavior was expected to be consistent with their calling was because they had learned Christ, thereby learning to put off the old self and to be renewed in their minds and to put on the new self. Second, I think that we need to safeguard this by being sure that we don't get the order backwards. Because just as sure there are folks that say, well, I can say that I believe in Christ, but then live a life of sin and decadence, there are other folks that get this order backwards. They, we don't need to think that we, we can... Uh, Putting off the old, that we can put off the old self in order to learn Christ, right? That, that's, that's not the way that it works. That we put off the old self and then we can learn Christ and be renewed in their minds. No, Paul makes the initial assumption, assuming you have learned Christ. Assuming you have learned Christ, then put off the old. You can't just start changing your habits and then say, oh well, now I'm going to start changing the way that I believe as well. They were taught the truth in Jesus so they could put off the old self. Don't go thinking that you can learn your way out of sin and unbelief. Because it doesn't make a difference how much you know. How, how much good things you know. Hear me rightly. It doesn't make a difference how much good theology you know. There are a lot of great theologians who don't even believe the, the Word of God is the Word of God. They just believe it's a book like any other book, and they know a lot of stuff about the book. You can't learn yourself out of unbelief. That's not the way that it works. We learn Christ. And because we have learned Christ, then we grow on to grow and mature in Him. You can't learn into salvation no more than you can swim into a swimming pool. Amen. 
right? Give that a shot. Rather look to Christ, right? I think that this is the foundation of the thing, and this is what Paul spent three chapters establishing. Look to Christ. Trust Christ. Learn of Christ. It is then and only then that you have the necessary frame of heart and mind to learn how you ought to live. Verse 24 goes on to tell us that the new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this, this idea is, is powerful because it, it really brings into light much of what Paul is aiming at in this whole letter to the Ephesians. He wants these Christians to know that they are a part, of, again, of a new society of people that God has created and they should live the way God designed them to live. In, in the Old Testament, there were two kinds of people. Both of those kinds of people were in Adam. You had descendants of Abraham who kept the Mosaic law. They were Jews. And then everybody else was a Gentile. <laughs> Those were the two categories of people. But in Ephesians, Paul introduces this new society of people who have learned Christ. Now the two categories are those in Adam and those in Christ. The people of God are no longer those in Adam who are descendants of Abraham and keepers of the law. Rather, the people of God are those who are in Christ. They have learned Christ. Christ is the federal head of the new covenant. He is, the, in the way that uh, Adam was the federal head of all of the unbelievers, of those who sinned, then Christ is the federal head of the new covenant, of those who were in Him. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians says He is the head of the church. He fills the fullness of everything. He is the ultimate new man or the ultimate new self. And so we are called to put off the old man who was in Adam and to put on the new man or the new self who is in Christ because Christ is the ultimate new man. This new self in Christ is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And that is key to understanding why it is that Paul can tell them to live in such a way. They are no longer in Adam with the tendencies and proclivities to be constantly sinning. They are no longer darkened in their understanding. They are no longer ignorant due to the uh, rebellion and unbelief of their heart. Rather, they are in Christ. And this new self, this new man in Christ, is created in righteousness and true holiness. That, does, that doesn't mean that those old desires just magically disappear, but it does mean that the Spirit of God living in us has the upper hand. And so we have the capacity. Whereas back in those days, uh, in the old manner of living, we would make New Year's resolutions or we would make 15 uh, false starts and try to say we're going to do better with this and we're going to quit doing that. As a matter of fact, let me, that doesn't work, does it? How did that work out for you when you were an unbeliever? Sometimes it doesn't work out very good when, while we're believers, does it? I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to attend church more. And it just turns out to be a false start. So it certainly doesn't work out when we're an unbeliever, right? 
But, but Paul can say, listen, you need to change your way of living. Don't live like the pagan society around you. And the reason he can do that is because the new man is created after God in righteousness and true holiness. Now there is a righteous desire. Now there is a, a tendency or a desire for holiness that didn't exist before, but the Spirit of God is in us, driving us to put off that old self and to put on the new self, right? We have the Spirit of God helping us, if you want to say it like that. Not only is this a theological basis for new life in Christ in general, but it is the basis for the very practical and specific examples of what it looks like for Christians to live this new life in Christ. He gives several concrete examples. These are not exhaustive. These are just illustrations or they are examples of what it looks like to put off the old self and to put on the new self which is created in righteousness and true holiness. So the first thing Paul tells them to do after having put away falsehood or putting away the old manner of thinking and living, he says to speak the truth. That is in verse 25. He, he prefaces with having put away falsehood. Paul again is operating on the assumption that they have put off the old self and put on the new self. Also note that Paul says they should speak the truth because they are members of one another. They should speak the truth because they are in the body of Christ. And this connects the new self with the new society. Any believer is a part of the church. The new self is connected with the new society. So having put off the old ways of falsehood, they speak the truth to one another, unlike the society around them. Of course, we know that when the truth is spoken in love, it produces maturity and Christ-likeness in the individual and in the body that Dale talked about last week. You want to have unity and maturity in the body? Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth with one another. And sometimes I think when we hear speak the truth, we hear correct the wrong, right? But that's not, I mean, that is part of it, but that's not all there is. Applaud the right. If it's true and right to say, thank you, brother, you have been an example to me in godliness or righteousness or maturity, speak the truth. Right? We, I think we always think of it in negative categories, but if we only think of it in negative categories, all we're going to have is a bunch of negative Nellies going around like the holiness police looking for something somebody's done wrong so they can obey the Word of God. May I say, Negatron Batman? That, do, that does not produce unity. Right? All that produces is, is division. Especially if it's only negative, I, I certainly understand that the, that the negative correction does produce unity. I do understand that. But what I'm saying is if it's only that, that's not going to produce unity. 
Speaking the truth is a call for us to be open to correction, to be open to correct one another, but also to be open to applause and to be open to commendation, maybe is the better way of saying that, and to given commendation. Speak the truth. Speak it in love. Speak the truth in love by commending someone. And even in those times when you may have to correct them, still do it in love. Still do it in love. Because we are members of one another, right? So to wound one is to wound the whole body. We've got to remember that we are members of one another. So how are we doing speaking the truth? Especially to members of our local congregation. Do we genuinely... Here's another area that I think that we can think of when it relates to speaking the truth. Do we speak the truth not only in commendation or rebuke, but do we speak the truth about ourselves with one another? Pray with me, brother. I am struggling with fill in the blank. Help me, sister. I am having a hard time with fill in the blank. Instead of, you know, walking around like we've got it all together... When everybody knows that ain't true, right? Not just speaking the truth as as it relates to rebuking, but speaking the truth about ourselves. Are folks hesitant to speak the truth to you because they're afraid that you'll get angry or offended? Listen, when we don't speak the truth to one another, we hinder the growth of the local church. And it will take some effort and it will take some patience and we might have to Bite our tongues from time to time. But Scripture plainly calls us to live out the new life in this way. And we're obligated to do that. Next, Paul speaks practically about anger. The first clause in Ephesians 4.26 is actually a direct quotation from Psalm 4.4. And the way it's worded in Hebrew makes it plain that this is an idiom that restricts justifiable anger from becoming sinful, right? He's not commanding, be angry, okay? First of all, get that right, be angry, but don't sin. No, that's not, he's not commanding anger. It is a way to restrict justifiable anger from becoming sinful. The, the NIV translate the passage, in your anger, do not sin. So not saying it's a sin to be angry, But if you do get angry, don't sin when you do it. It's apparent that Christ, the ultimate new man that I've been uh, talking about, was angry. You remember when he cleansed the temple, right? He he didn't, I mean, he he was mad. He was angry. As a matter of fact, they stood back and was like, the prophecy is fulfilled. The zeal of your house has eaten me up, right? I mean, eyebrows were furrowed, nostrils were flared, sleeves were rolled up. And he was like, you fellas need to get out of here because y'all are doing the wrong thing. Right? He was angry, but he did not sin. He never allowed his anger to cause him to sin. So Christians have to put on this new self. And their anger should be tempered by righteousness and should never enter into sinfulness. So get angry at the right things. And then when you do get angry, don't let it go overboard. Don't let it enter into sinfulness. Paul even gives a practical time limit on anger. Don't let the sun go down. Don't be angry all day. You go let the sun go down, you're going to get up and you're going to be thinking about it again. You're going to be angry again. 
And it simply means don't nurture anger. Don't hold it in your heart. Don't allow the embers of anger to smolder and burn in your inner being. If something is angering you, deal with it before it turns into rage or bitterness or, or something sinful like that. Paul even goes on, I believe, in verse 27, connecting this. Don't give place or give no opportunity to the devil. So to let that anger burn or smolder would give the devil an opportunity to cause you to sin. And I also think it speaks to the previous instruction of speaking the truth. If something, if something is causing anger in the hearts of the members of this new society... They are members of one another. They can speak the truth in love by the grace of God. They can go to their brother and sister and they can come to a peaceful resolution. They are members of the body of Christ after all. Instead of allowing it to turn into sin and bitterness and holding grudges, especially against those who are in the body of Christ and even more especially those who are in that local expression together. It takes work. But by God's grace, we have been equipped with the ability to do it. The, the Normans are notorious for their, temper, their short-temperedness. Um, matter of fact, part of our Christmas get-together with the Normans, part of the uh, discussion is uh, all of the Norman ladies or the... Uh, or the, Norman, the husbands that have married Normans, or it's more the other way around, the ladies who have married Normans, uh, men, uh, part of the discussion is all the, all the ways during that year that we have demonstrated our temp, short-temperedness. <laughs> so God, this one really hits home with me. It, it, it really speaks to me. I could give an illustration here, but I don't have time Ask me about it after service. It's a funny story about the way God taught me about my anger. It has to do with a hammer in my knee. <laughs> Next, Paul says that they should not steal, but rather work with their hands. And again, we can see the idea of the old self and the new self illustrated here. The old, if the old self was a thief then they are to cast off the works. Don't steal. Cast off the works of the old self. Further, they do not simply cease stealing, but they are to put on the works of the new man, which is to work with their hands. And, and sometimes I think that we might associate work with the fall, but, but God gave Adam and Eve purposeful work to guard and keep the garden even prior to the fall. The, the fall didn't make work stressful and laborious, but work is not a consequence of the fall. Paul then gives a, a reason for, for the honest work, and it wasn't to amount or amass rather large amounts of stuff. It was so that they might have some extra to share with someone who lacks. So do you see how this, this dignifies diligent work by giving it a purpose higher than one's own self? 
So if you are a thief, cast off that old way of living and walk in the new manner of living, working with your hands, but not just not stealing and not just working with your hands, but working diligently and hard so that if you have a little extra, you can bless others. So it gives it a higher purpose. It causes the work to be for the glory of God and for the service of others. Another practical example in verse 29. Paul says, cast off the old self, put on the new self, and by so doing, cease corrupt talk. That Greek word used here means rotten and carries the sense of worthless. The contrasting new self illustration of speech is described then as good. It's for edification or for building up, for strengthening. It's fitting, it fits the occasion. So the way a Christian talks, it should not be idle and worthless talk, like a, like a rotten piece of fruit sitting in a bowl of otherwise good fruit and then corrupting the other fruit in the bowl. Rather, it should bring not corruption to the audience, it should bring health to the audience. Whether, whether it's one person or a number of people. And then he goes on again to give the reason for the new way of communicating, which is to bring grace to those who hear. So do you see again in this example, as Paul did in the previous example, he emphasizes the other orientation of the new self. The old self thought about its own self. The new self is thinking about others. And Paul is continually reminding his audience of the church, of the others, of the body of Christ. The work that Christ has accomplished and the way it impacts their life is not simply for their benefit, but it is also, and perhaps even more so, for the benefit of others, for the benefit of the body. Watch out for the way that you talk so that it will bring grace and not corruption to the hearers. Since in this one, I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. This one, even more than the anger one, it, it got me. I've been reading Ephesians or listening to it in the uh, vehicle over and over again, just trying to sit and soak in the book of Ephesians so I can get a good feel for what Paul is trying to say. And this one, this one of all the ones, and y'all could probably think of more, but easy, you know, in love, speak the truth in love. Um, it, it just, it rocked me. It's like it stood out and was pointing its finger at me. Especially considering 5.4, it talks about... Uh, it talks about foolish or crude talking or a foolish talk or crude joking. And I think these passages instruct us what they are instructing us the most is to be careful by what we say and how we communicate. I think perhaps even a good question to ask ourselves before we say that thing or before we make that joke is would this build up the people I'm talking to? Right? Or would this bring grace into the conversation? Oh, 
And for me, for sure, that just, that, that hits my heart. And I'm certain that it hits yours too. We need to be sure we are hearing the Word of God calling us to be careful. And we don't revert to our old ways of talking, but we learn this new and good way of gracious, fitting, and edifying speech. Amen. Next, Paul state, makes a statement in verse 30 that I, I can't figure out where it's connected, but it concerns the Holy Spirit. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's diff difficult to determine if it's connected to the, uh, the preceding statement about corrupt speech uh, or if it's the following statements that just kind of sum up everything that, that Paul has said up to this point. It's possible that there's an allusion to Isaiah 63.10 where similar language is, is used concerning grieving the Holy Spirit. And in that context... In Isaiah 63, the people of God rebelled against God, grieved the Holy Spirit, and became the enemy of God. So the illusion could serve as a warning for Christians. Look, you're not the enemies of God, so don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God because you have been sealed to the day of redemption by the Spirit of God. So there's an encouragement connected to that that even harkens back to Ephesians Chapter 1 and verse 13 saying that they were sealed by the Holy Spirit. But further, I think that we can also see that perhaps Paul is making a theological basis or statement concerning their manner of living. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So don't grieve the Holy Spirit by living like the old self. And then finally, our text concludes with some admonitions in verses 31 and 32. Kind of a summarizing statement of what he has said up to this point. The idea, again, of putting off and putting on continues. First, Paul admonishes them to put off bitterness, wrath, and anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Bitterness being sourness of speech or disposition. Wrath, anger, clamor, they're all wrong expressions of anger that Paul just recently spoke of. Wrath has to do with acting out of rage, while clamor refers to shouting and screaming from ang anger. Right? Did y'all know that you could get angry without getting loud? <laughs> you can, according to the Bible. So uh, that, that's, what, that's what clamor is. Slander is is blasphemia in Greek and refers to speaking evil of someone, especially behind their backs in an attempt to destroy their reputation. And finally, malice is wishing ill will towards someone or even plotting evil against them. So put off those things. Put those things away from you. Let all of those things be put away from you. But then on the positive side of things, putting off the old, putting on the new. Paul calls them to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. Do you see the contrast? Kindness is used in referencing the kindness of God. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7. Let's, let's read that. I wasn't going to go to it, but, but I want to read that. 
so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us. So speaking of kindness, the kindness of God is brought into focus here. And it more than likely has much to do with Paul's call for them to be imitators of God in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children. So be kind like God. Tenderhearted is an expression for sympathetic, sympathetic rather, compassion. It's the, it's the kind of tenderness that would drive kindness and forgiven, forgiveness. If a person is tender-hearted, they are going to tend to be kind. And they are going to tend to forgive. They have a tender heart. It's not calloused and hard like that old manner of living that rebels and, uh, is, and lives in unbelief and ignorance. Rather, it is a tender-heartedness. It drives a desire to forgive. And finally, Paul calls the Christians to be forgiving towards one another as they had been forgiven in God or forgiven of God. Do you hear that? So not just forgiven, but the kind of forgiveness that God has demonstrated to them in Christ. <laughs> Woo! It just gets tighter and tighter, doesn't it? This new way of living. This is why we can't learn ourselves into it. It's why it requires a change of heart. Right? And it also requires maturity. It requires a good dose of the grace of God in our lives for us to become more and more like God, this new self which is created after God in righteousness and holiness. They had been forgiven by God, and so they are to show forgiveness to one another. Cast off the old self that imitated all of those who fell in Adam. And put on the new man that was created after God in true righteousness and holiness. And become imitators of God in kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. Stop acting like you're in Adam and start acting like you're in Christ. So as Christians, we are delivered from the old self. And because we are delivered from the old self, we are delivered from the old manner of living. So let our, let our belief reveal or be revealed in our behavior. Put off the old way of corruption, deceitfulness, and ignorance. And then put on the new self. Live the way the ultimate new man, Jesus Christ, lived. Be sure that our actions line up with our profession and that our behavior demonstrates what we believe because I would argue that ultimately... It does. God, you are good to us. We are all of the examples of the old man without your grace. But, but with your grace, we can become like you. And so, our prayer today then is to fill us with your grace that we may live more and more in a way that pleases you. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, and giving us such a hope.
And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.